0: Hi, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us today and to uh, the first presentation of the SDC. Uh, we're very pleased to have with us uh, Len Schleiper, co-founder, president and CEO for Regeneron, uh, Bob Landry, Regeneron CFO, and Justin Hoiko, who runs the IR group. So thank you all for joining us today. And uh, Justin, why won't you? We discuss that you will start with a few words, and, and then uh, Len and I to do. we will do a bit of a QA. and a Go ahead.
1: Thank you, Ronnie. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that remarks made on today's webcast will include forward looking statements by Regeneron. Each forward looking statement is subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results and events to differ materially from those projected in that statement. A more complete description of these and other material risks can be found in Regeneron's SEC filings. We do not undertake any obligation to update any forward looking statements, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise.
0: Thanks, Justin. So, Len, thank you for uh, being here this morning. And uh, let me start by asking you: as if you guys have set up your plan for uh, 2021, you now, if you could just t- talk to us a little bit about your main objectives and, and where you're standing in terms of achieving them.
1: Sure. Well, Ryan, first of all, thanks for having us. We very much appreciate it. Um, I, I think that we're off to a pretty darn good start. Um, if you look at how the first quarter came in. Um, if you, in excluding Regenco, uh, because we don't know how that's going to be, we still had 20% uh, top line growth uh, and very strong bottom line growth. EBIT grew 35%, excluding Regenco. Um, so uh, this was all driven, obviously, by ILEA uh, sales, which are uh, at a run rate. I think it's about a $9 billion global run rate uh, with continued growth expected. And Dupixent. Uh, obviously with a lot more growth expected and is is now clicking along at about a $5 billion global run rate. Um, And Sanofi is busy uh, launching and we'll be working with them in some of these ex-U.S. countries. Uh, There's lots more to to grow there as well. Um, So we're off to a good start with our inline products, also LibTayo. We've gotten a couple more approvals. Uh, It takes a while to get uh, uh, the real um, revenue streams going there, especially, I think, in lung cancer, We'll need to get the uh, the data that's coming up. I hope uh, in the second half on our uh, chemo combination with our NIPD1 one Libtio. Uh, and then we have a lot of things. Uh, a lot of things we have to do yet. Um, uh, we uh, we're working hard to get um, our regencov uh, authorized at a lower dose and for use uh, by as an alternative it's subcutaneous administration. Um, we're hoping for an action on that. Uh, uh, very soon, uh, perhaps uh, within a week um, and um, we're excited about also uh, following that working closely with the uh, uh, regulatory authorities the FDA, and elsewhere um, looking at our prevention opportunity that's a very important opportunity for us because that may be the real chronic part of the disease um, we've got a lot we've got a lot of uh, important uh, 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 catalysts if you will you guys like to call them uh, that uh, we call them data points um in our uh, in our pipeline we've got some high dose ilea phase two data uh, we hopefully will get the dupixen approved the pediatric asthma we've got some phase three dupixen data in uh, and and uh, chronic spontaneous urticaria we're enrolling our copd which i think everybody is sort of forgetting about but that's a a big deal for us uh, Potential in in COPD, um, and we're going to continue to push forward um, uh, and try and deploy our capital as uh, prudently as as we can um, uh, for consistent with trying to get the long term growth and shareholder value.
0: Okay, so why don't we actually just go a little bit to the franchises and then come back up to the corporate strategy? Yeah. So start with Aaliyah. I guess the news of the of the weekend, uh, the long weekend was uh, an announcement from one of your peers who've done a head to head trials against uh, against ALEA and showed that Alelia actually is safer head to head what are the implications of this commercially i mean i understand the scientific win but from how does that translate in how physicians will behave in, in your analysis
1: yeah so i think that the the data you are referring to what no- novartis was doing a a monthly um, uh, administration of Biovu versus monthly administration of ILEA in a true head-to-head, not cross-study, really blinded, independently monitored. Uh, and the data were that they had um, a three times, uh, uh, some ways around a threefold. I think it was about 1.8 to about just under 5% uh, for Biovu, 5% for Biovue, less about less than 2% for ILEA. Um, uh, in terms of three lines of vision loss. And that integrates a lot of things, including the inflammation, the retinal vein occlusion, and the vasculitis. Uh, and we didn't have, see, they didn't see any um, vasculitis or retinal vein occlusion with ILEA. But the implications here are not so much about Bioview because Bioview has not really been a commercial threat to us, because people have known uh, uh, about these problems. Uh, and so that sort of I think, tempered any enthusiasm that might ex- might have existed there. But the, it's much broader implications, Ronnie, We're talking about, we ha- we're having, we've given, I don't know, somewhere around 25 million or 30 million injections have, of ILEA since launch have been administered. Think about that scale, 25 million. Think about the scale. And the eye is one of the most sensitive places to administer anything. Um, it's extremely sensitive. You know, if you have an injection site reaction when you give a when you give dupey or or emberl or pick your your favorite subcutaneous, oh you know, who cares? You have the equivalent of an injection site reaction in the eyeball, you care a lot. Okay. And so I think the implications here are uh, that until you've studied your product and lots of patients at high frequency. Um, High frequency is just a proxy for long long term administration. You see something in a one month administration or a few months, you're going to see it in every other month um, over a longer period of time, most likely. Um, And it says that this is going to be a hard thing to do. It even has implications for biosimilars. If you think about it, um, the impurities are super hard to, to get right. OK, the misfolding, super hard to get right. The things you can't even assay in a test tube, but the body can assay it. And so convincing people to switch over to another product when you've got 25 million injections behind you, I think there's a pretty high bar there. Um, and you get great efficacy, and we're getting more efficacy. And that, that's why I think we're seeing growth, um, significant growth um, of the product, the continued, continued growth. Um, we expect to see more. Uh, because this product has uh, earned the respect uh, of the physicians.
0: So we're talking about for the next couple of years, um, uh, you're still taking a little bit of share from Lucentis. You, The market is still growing. Uh, you're going uh, into additional niches. So you're right now growing about 15% uh, in the first half of this year. Uh, if you look at volumes using uh, ASP as a proxy for price, uh, if you think about the next couple of years, is this, ballpark, what we're likely to see, continue to see? Or is this essentially some sort of a rebound coming out of the uh, epidemic and they should slow down over time?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Ronnie. You know, we don't like to predict forward um, uh, because... Directional. uh, Pardon me? Directional. Yeah, we, we, we give you directional for sure, but we don't like to give you specifics because we don't necessarily have a better crystal ball, maybe not even as good a crystal ball as you have. But if you look back, what you saw is that the, the 15% growth, some of that was driven, uh, that you saw in the first quarter, some of that was driven obviously by um, the pandemic moving injections around, even potentially skipping injections because people were afraid to go to the doctor in that critical March timeframe uh, last year, especially in the large metropolitan areas like New York. Um, but I think that um, there was significant amount, maybe it was about half looking back, of the growth was still there. Um, regardless uh, just from organic growth. And it's not just taking share from uh, Lucentis, by the way. I think it's also taking share from Avastin. Remember, Avastin still has about half the market um, uh, in terms of of volume. So that's a pretty big uh, uh, group of, uh, uh, if you will, injections that we still are are, are looking to convince people that Aaliyah makes uh, more sense. Um, And so I would say, Without giving you specifically, yes, I do see significant growth for the next several years.
0: I'm surprised that we are saying Avastin is that high. I thought 50% was like the number three years ago, and now it's going to be materially lower. If it's still, let's, let's I don't care if it's 50 or 40, I don't care exactly, but, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but it's significant.
0: It's significant. So I, I'm guessing the inflammation data, especially since uh, Lucentis or Avastin is injected much more frequently than, than ILEA. Um, that should be able to be a, a reasonable high quick impetus for those physicians to use to use less of that given the inflammatory signal you're seeing with View. I was wondering if, if you guys looked at this directly in, um, in uh, surveys or some other work and conv- convinced yourself that indeed physicians are going to use less of vestin
1: well, we're seeing less and less of Avastin being used. We see shortages periodically. Very recently, I think there was some question about a syringe problem at one of the major suppliers we got word about. You know, you hear these things. Um, there are people who are still committed to Avastin. They just think that um, it's, a, a, it's the right choice, at least to start out with. Um, it's not the way we see it, obviously. It's not the way many, many people see it. Um, um, but I think more and more that there are these concerns about inflammation uh, that, you know, you're you're dealing with a a compounded product there um, which doesn't have the same level of post uh, uh, monitoring. You know, we monitor uh, uh, literally every week. We monitor how many reports of intraocular inflammation are out there. And, you know, we can pick up a couple per 10,000 on a reporting basis. If it spikes up to five per 10,000, you know, alarm bells would go off like crazy. And we've had that once or twice over the course of the last decade. And, and we tracked it down last time to a syringe batch. So we're very careful about all this. And there's less of that that goes on, if you will, uh, for a vest. And there's some by the ASRS and, and others. But I, I don't know. I think that um, people are more and more understanding the value of a product that can deliver the efficacy that ILEA can do, um, as well, frankly, as the safety after 25 million injections, uh, that's a, it is a high bar. Okay. So
0: would with, with the adoption of Biosimilar Lucentis be a bit, of a, a bit of a test? I mean, physicians who've used Lucentis for years, switching to Biosimilar, would that be a test for the willingness of the market to consider safety, to consider longevity of experience before they use Biosimilars?
1: Yeah, I think it will be interesting to look at that. Um, But each molecule, of course, um, is is a little different. Our molecule is a little bit harder to make, a little bit more complicated uh, because it's not an antibody fragment. It's a receptor-based molecule. And so that's a little bit trickier, but I think it'll be some proxy to see um, how much... I think biosimilar lucentis will compete against lucentis primarily. So you're right. It'll be some proxy to see... How, uh, how a biosimilar does. But I think that each one and even literally each biosimilar manufacturer may have to be uh, uh, evaluated. And I think people aren't going to go head first into something until they see some uh, evidence that uh, you can give large scale. And people have to make, think about it, you have to make these things at, at the multi-million injection scale. That, that's a, a big deal. All right.
0: Let's switch over and talk about DUPI a little bit. Yep. Um, so you you know I, I think everybody kind of accepted that given the safety questions around the jacks, no matter where the FDA comes out on those, um, Dupixent has the safety advantage. Um, but how do you deal with the efficacy question? Uh, you know, I we would argue that they have a larger impact uh, and more action on itch versus versus Dupi, and what is essentially the the Regeneron counter argument.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think when you're treating people with atopic dermatitis, which is a serious disease, but not a life-threatening disease, and you're treating many, many children with this disease, okay, um, safety, 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 is gonna be a very big part of the decision-making here. This notion that because you take it by mouth, make something safer, I like to say, well, you can take cyanide by mouth, okay? It doesn't make it particularly safe. Um, and so the route, it's not the route of administration that matters, but there is some education that still has to go on. For example, when we first launched DUPI, a lot of doctors thought of it as a biologic. A lot of dermatologists thought of it as an immunosuppressive because they thought of, of, of atopic dermatitis as an immunologic disorder like they thought of psoriasis as an immunologic disorder, so they thought you had an immunosuppress. Well, that's not the case with dupy. It's not the kind of immunosuppression that you see with psoriasis and what you see with rheumatoid arthritis. So if you want to talk about a proxy here, the uptake of the Jax in psoriasis or or let's say rheumatoid arthritis where there's approvals is sort of a measure. But there you're trading oral for injectable, both having immunosuppressive. so that's sort of like the best case for oral if you know what I'm saying. but when you're trading in in when you're dealing with the type 2 immune immunologic reactions and you're trading oral uh, bio, uh, uh, injectable for oral and and getting with that trade, you know you're getting a couple of outfielders thrown in meaning you, you're getting, uh, you're getting uh, immunos true immunosuppression. You know you can't be all things to all people. You can't treat rheumatoid arthritis with a jack and atopic dermatitis, and then when you treat atopic dermatitis, not have the bad effects that you get when you do the immunologic suppression of the type one part of the immune system. So I think that it is a hard sell. The other thing is is that the jacks have nothing um, on the comorbidities like asthma. Nothing on the comorbidities like nasal polyps or chronic sinusitis. So this allergic constellation uh, that people have is is going to be treated uh, more with an agent like Dupi than it is with a jack. So safety and the and the breadth of uh, of the comorbidity effect, I think, is going to continue to grow. Having said all that, the penetration is very low here, Ronnie. Uh, if you look at it, you're talking about single-digit type penetration other than maybe double-digit in the in the, uh, rhinos sinusitis world for other reasons. But low penetration, okay, people are still a little bit hesitant, means there's a lot of room to grow. So even if there are other agents that come to market, I think there's, there is an opportunity for the market to grow, Um and so, and we've seen that. If you look back, that's what happened with psoriasis. That's what happened with rheumatoid arthritis. But DUPI has a huge lead. It has, it has the comorbidities. It has an incredible safety. You've got hundreds of thousands of people that take DUPI. So the exposure is just going to be um, uh, uh, incomparable.
0: So let's go to the other side of this, which is, look, in psoriasis, we've seen that as more drugs come in, we have seen price compression. Uh, we, should we expect as we get three, four, or five drugs approved and atopic dermatitis over the next five years to see similar price compression in this category?
1: Well, look, we, we've strived to have 90% of commercial lives um, that are, can get access to our drug. Um, and we're doing a great job uh, with, uh, with Dupy in that regard. We'll, could we see some gross to net erosion? As new engines come in and the category matures, sure. But, you know, we have great market access uh, and we're continually improving the quality of that. Regeneron and Sanofi have been good actors on price. Um, we'll respond um, to the market forces as we need to. Um, but I think being very large, being have such a long head start, being able to address comorbidities, I think we'll get the access we need and the price that's fair.
0: Better. Gotcha. Uh, Humira suffers from, from competition, but it somehow still continues to grow every year. Um, so let's move over and talk about the great antibodies. So first, I've got to tip my hat off to you guys. You've been right all along, not only on, on developing this very quickly, but what it required to stay in the market longer term, as we've seen from the FDA uh, decision uh, to leave you as the preferred product in, in the markets uh, where some of the more aggressive variants are, are present. So, you know, George and his team definitely deserve the full kudos here. The question I have here is why is it not used more? I mean, there's been a lot of discussions around the use of antibodies and it seems that all the efforts have gone into vaccines. So, so you know, what is your game plan it spe- to, get
1: it, to sp- get it used? This is a spectacular question. Um, it's one that history will have to judge um, how we did in this world. Um, had we priced this drug, no matter what we priced the drug, okay, um, whether it would be a dollar or a million dollars, people would have said we mispriced it, and that response—that's what why there was no uh, uptake. Of course, now that there, there is no pricing because the government um, gives it away for free, so we can take that off the off the ledger. It has nothing to do with pricing. So why is a drug? And let's just review: Why is a drug that has seventy percent? reduction in inarguable phase three data, 70% reduction um, in the risk of hospitalization or death, okay? Without any significant safety concerns, okay? Rare anaphylactic type, very rare, controllable, some injection infusion reactions. How can this be that it's not being used and why? And I think it's multifactorial. I think that part of it started from the fact that we probably did save uh, former President Trump's life. And the fact that he went around- And
0: people, and people met at that?
1: There are certainly people who reacted negatively to him running around touting oh. that Regeneron saved him because he was also touting hydroxychloroquine and things like that. And I think there was a reaction, well, he doesn't get to determine what's good. We, the academic community, get to determine what's good. But now we have all this data, and it isn't like open arms. Could it? it part of it was people were nervous uh, because you had to give it by intravenous injection, which meant you had to bring infected people to the hospital, and they thought that they wouldn't have an ability to deal with them. Part of it, I'm sad to say, is that you know people rationalize a lot of things, but there was no economic incentive because normally there's an economic incentive for institutions because they make some money based the way drugs are reimbursed. If a drug actually costs something, okay, when a drug is free, they, they don't make any money. And the reimbursement rate, which has now been raised, was such that many institutions thought they were losing money. So when you lose money and you don't make money, and the academic community sort of is, well, we're not so sure. After all, what does Trump know? That kind of thing. When you put all that together, and, and it has to be given my IV, it is one of the great disappointments. that it, 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 Tens and tens and tens of thousands of lives uh, have been lost unnecessarily, in my view, because of lack of full deployment of the monoclonal antibodies.
0: Uh, OK, so that's the past.
1: Yes. Now, what about the future? I'm sorry. Yes, the future is two things. The future is subcutaneous administration. And we are uh, hoping that the FDA will act on that um, as a potential alternative. I think everybody will always prefer IV because you get that instant benefit. But if it's going to be a delay or what have you, we're hoping we can get to subcutaneous administration at at a lower dose where you can give it uh, by just four shots under under the skin and you're done. So that's one thing. But the big Thing, what we're seeing a tremendous amount of uh, use now from a compassion use point of view, is the people who don't respond to uh, vaccination. People who are immunosuppressants, people who have immunosuppressive disease, people with organ transplants, cancer patients, myeloma patients, lymphoma patients, people on a variety of immunosuppressive drugs for a variety of diseases like immunologic diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. Many of them, and we estimate there's at least several million in the United States who do not respond despite repeated vaccination. And so we have data now, already have data. Um, in our prophylactic phase three study, where you can prevent spread, the way we did the study, Ronnie, it was a very, George and his team did a fabulous job on this. They, they looked at household contacts of a, somebody, they, they, somebody was infected, and so they administered in a placebo-controlled manner to all the members of the household, and they showed that you blocked infection by 80%. And in fact, after the first week, that protection was 90%. So it was 80% overall, 70% in the first week, 90% thereafter. So giving an antibody, just giving an antibody before you're infected, before you're infected, is really quite an amazing thing. And what this told us is that, first of all, the earlier you give our drug, the better. And the, the chances that it's going to make a big difference when you're already hospitalized and on a ventilator, we don't have that data. But the chances of that happening, I think, are small. Um, you know, maybe it will see something, but I I would be betting somewhat, uh, you know, conservatively on that. But the early you give it, such as in the treatment setting, or it, where you can where you can literally save people from going in the hospital or dying, or in the prevention study where you can block people from getting the disease. And by the way. You can block the number of weeks that they shed the virus dramatically. So you, you not only block them from getting symptomatic infections, you block them from spreading it. I think this is, could be a godsend for people who don't respond. And that's where we think the chronic um, long-term opportunity is here. Assuming that this virus behaves like the, let's say, a flu, where it's around. and It's not a pandemic, but it's, it's still uh, you know, it's there. That's the big opportunity. So that's the one we're turning to next with the FDA. Okay,
0: so give me a little bit of feel for the commercial plan. What are you going to do? You're going to look for the professional societies to incorporate that into the guidelines for treating multiple myeloma. Yeah, you know, you're going to what is you going to look for some sort of recommendation from CDC? What is the how are you going to get this thing commercialized?
1: Yeah, interestingly enough, if we have a prophylactic and a chronic prophylactic indication where you can give it, let's say monthly by sub-Q, maybe even self-administered. But subcutaneous periodic injections to people who don't, you know, people are panicked. Uh, I had just yesterday somebody who begged me to, how can they get on the drug because they've had a heart transplant and they're locked up in their house, they take no visitors, they got vaccinated, they got no response because of the immunosuppression with the organ transplant, and they're desperate to get something like this. So, assuming we can get this uh, approved, which I think there's a very good likelihood there, um, we have very strong data, um, then I think we have to focus on those doctors that treat these patients, the people who treat the lymphomas, the myelomas, the cancers, the people who are involved in organ transplants. So it is standard of care that if you have a lymphoma patient, you know you're going to vaccinate them against everything you can, and you're going to give them. For If you've got chronic uh, uh, common variant immunodeficiency who get IVIG on a regular basis, they would li- like to take this drug on a regular basis. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of patient making sure that this happens. I think the marketing here is like a whole different campaign because you're now treating people. It's sort of like it's an, you can think of it as a passive vaccine for those people who won't respond to the active vaccine. Okay. So,
0: you know, you, you know, you know, i analysts, we always like to see some traction. Uh, what is the kind of the first professional society where you're going to go after with this indication to the extent that was decided already?
1: You know, that's an interesting question. I, don't, I actually don't know the answer, but I would suspect it'll be something related to the cancer uh, people with lymph, maybe the Lymphoma Society, something like that. They've expressed a lot of interest in, because most of their patients are not responding adequately. So maybe the, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, uh, and, and maybe that's a good place to start.
0: Robert, I noticed that you were, were you planning to say something? You're on mute, so I don't know if you were, had a thought that you want to do it. A-
1: listening intently, Ronnie, okay. <laughs> nodding okay. ahead in, in all instances. He's quickly quickly up, updating his internal models, just like you are, based on <laughs> what I'm saying. I, I, I do want to be clear, Ronnie, that we, we don't have the preventive indication, I got it, I got it, got it. but yep. we are expecting the sub-Q treatment, um, lower dose, hopefully very soon. I mean, we're not expecting, we can't say what they're going to do, but we're certainly expecting action by the agency soon. So, uh, got it. We're crossing our fingers on that.
0: Got it. And you do have the prophylaxis indication. So, you know, just targeting it with a sub-cure indication does not, does not mean you're marketing the excess of your label. You can go to market and, and talk to physicians on the idea of using it prophylactically for people who don't respond with the label.
1: No, not it. until we have a, an authorization there. Or okay. We can't promote this off-label. No, we cannot.
0: I was wondering if you have the label because your current label would once you no, the our subject, current you're label to...
1: does not does not include prophylaxis. Ah. Only treatment. Okay. So the first, let me just be clear the, the next thing we hope to get is treatment subcutaneously at a lower dose. Once that's done, okay, assuming that it's positive, the FDA I believe will turn to our prophylaxis data and we'll see how that goes.
0: Okay, very good. So let's go over and talk about and oncology. So, you know, I gave you some unsolicited advice. It's a shame uh, we're
1: running out. I'd love to talk about it, but it looks like we're running out of time, Ronnie. <laughs> you know. I, I would also love to talk about it, but you have to quit your job and apply for a job at Regeneron because you have interesting ideas. But, you know, we're not allowed to, nor would it make sense for us to have discussions about our pricing strategies okay. in, in a public forum. We just can't do so,
0: that. So let's, let's, let's put it that way. Um, you know there are now multiple companies that have seemed to have going on a price led strategy for for PD1 right you know in your in your in your own thinking is there a place for those in the market uh, in the united states and in europe
1: right.
0: um, how big that place is um, just give me a you know is this is the thought is that you know no way jose this is never happening or 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 there's going to be something but maybe not what we want to do
1: you might, I mean, maybe Ken Frazier or Merck would be better positioned to, uh, to answer that question um, uh, since he has a much bigger stake in it than I do. And they, he knows the market much better than I do. But I, I would, from my perspective, um, it's, the, the market is sort of segmented to different types of users. And, and the majority of the market is far more focused on efficacy than they are on price. OK, that isn't to say that they're price insensitive, but they're far more focused on efficacy. And I think the lesson we've learned here, Ronnie, is that all PD ones are not intended to be identical and they're not. Um, and, you know, Optivo is not the same as Catruda. Um, And we think that has its place as, as the potential for best in class. But I really think that this is all going to become moot pretty quickly. Because I think we're going to start combining these things. Whether, for example, we've got some pretty exciting data with LAG3 in combination with LIBTIO, uh and It's early going, we're somewhat behind, but the, the data look pretty darn impressive um, uh, in, in melanoma, combining a, a, our Libtio with our LAG3. We're, we're dosing up um, combinations uh, with our COSTIMs, our bispecs. Uh, Liptio is a backbone. So I think that actually it's going to become moot because it doesn't matter whether you could give away the the, the PD-1, if you combine it with a costim, you get the pricing on the IM. So, or if you're, com- if you're combining it with LAG-3 together, you get a single price, who cares? You can ascribe, you know, what the market says it's worth. I think that our strategy has always been that we have to put together things um, which gives us a competitive advantage, right? So let's so talk cool about something. We, we'll look for your we'll look for your advice again when we have some combinations uh, ready to go and see how you would price that. Yeah,
0: I think you'll get it even if you don't ask for it, but that's a definition. <laughs> uh, uh, so let's let's uh, move ahead and talk a little bit about, about the City Twenty Eight. So I've been reading some of those papers and look, I mean, pretty innovative stuff. Um, and I guess the question is in your mind, uh, what is the proof of con- I mean, you got two different ideas going on one of a combination with PD1s, the other one a combination with the CD3 by specific. Uh, right. And I guess the, I got two full questions. The first one is when are, going to see, when are we going to see the proof of concept? You, you've told us you're going to see early data from the P- PSMA CD28 with FlippedIO in early right. 22. Is this going to be enough data to demonstrate the added benefit of adding the CoSTIM? on top yeah. of the or that's that's later.
1: You know, I always have trouble being a, a, a forecaster. You know, you, you drive out, you say, let's go look at a beautiful sunset, uh, and it rains, uh, okay? So um, it's hard to predict the future until the future actually arrives. But I'll say this, the animal data that you, you've looked at are strong. Um, the first important thing to remember here is to do no harm. To make sure that we can get into dosing um, without creating a CD28 superagonism, uh, which, as you know, has resulted in you know a catastrophe uh, in years past. And we were able to do it in animals and toxicology studies. We've gotten through multiple dose escalation cohorts, and so far we see no evidence of CD28 superagonism. So that's a Actually, for us, is kind of a important first step. Um, but beyond that, you know, we hope to have data. Maybe the end of the year uh, could be more likely. Maybe it's in early twenty two. But you know, it's one of those things you won't ha- you you, know, you you get it when you when you get it, um, and you can't rush this. And you know, we got a little setback, I would say, in recruitment because of COVID, um, like everybody else did. But now it's moving again. We've got three of them in the clinic with more coming. We've got to do lots of combinations, combinations with our CD3-based bispecs, combinations with libtaio, different targets. Um, I think we, we, the animal data suggests that we will get there, um, but we'll have to see and wait for the data. I wish I could tell you a date, sir. No,
0: I'm not. I'm, I, let's, let's leave the dates aside. I mean, the question is, when you first release the data, Would it be, will there be enough there for us to be able to look at compare that data to, you know, Liptio alone? Yes. Or PD1 alone and say, okay, this adds some efficacy.
1: Okay. So you raise a great point. One of the most frustrating things I think about cancer development is the lack of control groups. Mm -hmm. People come in and they say, geez, our drug, you know, has a 50% response rate, and the the established drug only has a 40% response rate. You know, these cross study kind of comparisons don't really tell you all that much. And so one of the things in cancer you look for is single agent activity, okay? But the problem is, is that you really don't expect single agent activity with this class of drugs. So one of the strategies that we've done is we've gone in cancers where when you combine it, let's say with liptio or combine, you know, that you're in a setting where the background response with libtio is so low, that the answer would be yes. If you saw what we hope to see, you'd have a pretty good uh, belief that it was due to the uh, CD28. We, I, I get your problem. I, com- I congratulate you for thinking about that. I kind of hate uh, when, the, when the communities at large, whether they be academic, industrial, uh, uh, analysts, buy side, whatever, go crazy over uncontrolled data and saying well our 22% response rate is better than the 15% response rate you know by single agent that doesn't do much for us it's got okay, to be clear but,
0: but the point is know, that you it sounds like you're telling me is that you've picked cancers where the response rate to the to, to PD1s is low enough yeah that, that that if you have a, son, a signal we should be able to see it when you report the data yes
1: yeah, like like in prostate for example
0: um, got you know, it got it okay Okay. So since so fantastic. Really looking forward to that one. Um, let's we talk about- are, We f- are too. I'm sure. Uh, let me, uh, let's follow up on a few of your uh, a pipeline. I want to just touch on two. Uh, first, you kind of highlighted this before, the Intalia uh, data coming out with a proof of concept for CRISPR uh, use in ATTR. Can you talk a little bit about this? Uh, what is this program? What will the first data point show or not show? And, and kind of what is your arm and leg in this in this project?
1: Yeah, so I don't want to talk too much about this because this is really important, obviously, to our good friends at Intelia. Um, we have a 25% interest in this particular molecule, but more importantly, we have a long pipeline of opportunity. So to us, this is very, very important as a proof of concept um, for us. Um, it, for Intellia, it's not only a proof of concept, if it works, it'll be a proof uh, for a specific market opportunity. For us, you know, the market opportunity is almost less important than the fact that we have, we have a huge pipeline of opportunities for them. So if you can safely, in humans, um, use CRISPR uh, genome editing technology, that opens the door for huge opportunities. They're studying roles. I think uh, just under forty people, um, and um, so I'm sure that they're uh, getting uh, as fast getting data, getting to data as fast as they can. And we're looking forward to it uh, just as much as you are. So if you're interested from the Italian point of view, uh, obviously you should talk to them. But that has implications for their near term, you know, revenue sure. opportunities. For us, it's you know much more important. Does does this stuff actually work in people? If it does, big deal for us cuz we, okay. we we picked the right partner and so on.
0: So okay, so let's assume it works. What does it trigger on your side? What programs are going to kick kicked off? What are we going to see? And essentially what what happens if you say you're waiting for the data? In data, let's assume it's positive, what happens on the general side?
1: Well, we're not we we we're, we're, we're in, I would say we're not waiting for the data, we're anticipating the data because we're already moving forward we haven't, I don't believe, disclosed our programs, uh, Justin, just yet. Have hey, we he's
0: not yes. No, he's not, I'm just no, I'm just kidding. He's <laughs> saying no. Yeah.
1: Uh, we have not, so I can't reveal what the targets are. But there are lots. Let me just say that one of the things that George loves, okay, is he likes platforms that create franchises. Think about it. Our um, antibody technology which they, he worked so hard at, which he first thought of as a graduate student at Velocimus, created a platform where we could re- reproducibly make lots and lots of different antibodies quickly, turn them into drugs. Two other platforms that he's very interested in would be uh, what we do with our nylum, siRNA, and what we do with Intelia. Um, SiRNA already has proof of concept, um, so we're moving forward, obviously, but we think that um, if Intellia gets it, that will create a platform for us. And we have broad rights to get a lot of different programs um, going with them. So, um, uh, you know, it's a pretty, uh, it'd be a pretty important moment for us if it all works. So cross our fingers for that one.
0: Okay. Uh, we got uh, a, few, um, a few questions on the, on the, from the audience. And I'd like to hit one of mine, and I'll go to that. So, okay. you know, you've worked before with Iser. With Um, And my question for you is essentially about the thought about using ICER as an ESG tool uh, for investors. So, you know, the argument has always been that drug pricing is a key issue from an ESG perspective for investors. And in your mind, are those the right people to actually evaluate the the drug market for investors in terms of how fair people price?
1: Right. I don't want to break our arms, patting ourselves on the back, but in some respects, we helped launch Icer, um, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, by uh, I talked about them in our pricing and value proposition with Pryu and, Um and and um, you know I think uh, and so we know those people. I think they have tried very hard not to be um, a reflex. Uh, uh, all price, all prices are bad. Okay. Uh, or, or on the other side, somebody might say all prices are good. Um, I think they have tried reasonably to, to say, what is the incremental value that your therapy is bringing and at what cost is it bringing it? Um, you know, I got into a bit of a tiff with them and, and told them that, I thought they had done some stuff that that really didn't meet certain standards. And I think they owned up to that, um, that they they can't just insert their view of what society can afford. Uh, That's not their role. Their role is to do a academic, honest, intellectually honest assessment of what they think the value uh, of a product is uh, and what is the cost of that incremental value. Um, If you're saving a life, um, is it costing you $50,000 fifty thousand dollars a year or five hundred thousand dollars a year and not what and even if it's, if it's and if it's worth fifty thousand a year and it would cost 50 trillion dollars that's not really ICE's job to figure out how to deal with the total sum their their job I've always felt I shouldn't be telling other people what their jobs are but People like to tell me what my job is, so I might as well return the favor. And I very much like Steve Pearson and that gang over there. I I, I have worked with them um, and had very honest intellectual conversations, and we don't always agree, but I think there is a role, okay? It's a tool. Um, uh, And frankly, I would like to see it applied um, more broadly outside the United States because uh, we're not getting the value for our drugs outside the United States,
0: makes sense. So, taking two from from the audience very quickly. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, dupexin indication developments and, and the you know what's referred to as the secondary indications. I remember you used to tell us that none of us is on a model enough enough for some of the non uh, some non asthma non atopic dermatitis indications. Is that still the view. And and what is the path to leveraging those?
1: Yeah. Well, let me just pick one, okay? COPD. Um, The targeted population that we're going after, you know, is pretty big. I think it's hundreds of thousands of patients um, uh, in the US. That could add a lot of revenue. Um, I think that there are a bunch of of these other ones. um, And the more that you add them also, the more that it creates this moat, if you will, um, where it's harder for competition. Because if you can offer only a type of dermatitis, but you can't offer C O P D or asthma or rhinosinusitis or what have you, um, or I'll give you another one that you, you you we're all underestimating in my opinion, which is the eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, it's a I think it's an underdiagnosed uh, uh, condition that's undertreated and has does not have great treatments. We have great data. We expect I think to be able to file what, sometime around the end of the year once we have what we need? Um, is that right, Justin? You're on mute. Yes, you're shaking your head. Yes, that's correct. Correct. We expect final phase three data this year. Yeah, so that's an important one. Um, and, you know, that puts us into the food allergy sort of business a little bit. Um, so I do think that there, you know, there truly is people used to, you know, people used to talk about, platforms. I talk about platforms of technology. Now people, people always talk about pipelines and this is a a pipeline within a single drug. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like, well, if we had a different drug for asthma, okay. You know, you might value it this and then a different drug for atopic dermatitis and a different drug for COPD and a different drug. But instead, you know, everybody gets a little intellectually lazy. They just lump it together and say, ah, well think it's this big, but I don't, I don't think that's sort of a fair way of looking at it. I, I do think we don't project it. Sanofi, our, uh, our partner, Paul Hudson, has their views. They've made their views known publicly. We don't have those public type of assessments. But we do think it's going to be uh, certainly bigger than a bread box. Uh, it's already running at a $5 billion, $5 billion clip. Um, and so and I think it has tremendous growth yet. OK.
0: Um, since you mentioned allergies, uh, we are expecting, I guess, in the third quarter, the data for um, the antibody cocktail for allergic rhinitis. Right. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about this product? Right. Uh, path to submission, market potential. Um, what is the potential for this product?
1: Yeah. So, without speaking about the specifics of this product, we, let, let's talk about our general approach to. Um, Allergic diseases, of which allergic rhinitis is an important one, for which people take allergy shots, what have you. What we've established, and this George is another one of part of his genius, is that you know everybody made this too complicated. Um, what causes allergies? It's primarily IgE re- reacting to the allergen instead of IgG. Um, and it, and what's the the goal? What is the goal of uh, desensitization, Ronnie? The goal of desensitization is to build up IgG levels higher than IgE levels by slowly giving exposure without risking anaphylaxis and doing it for a couple of years so that the IgG levels protect you and get to the allergen before your IgE does. And we've shown we can put people in a a chamber and expose them to cat dander. in a controlled chamber and people who are allergic and their FEV1 drops um, and they really get symptomatic and we have to rescue them. And we can show this dramatic effect if we treat them with an IgG to Fel one the primary uh, allergen. So th- this is what we're trying to do with the various, you know, um, birch type allergies, cocktail against the various bet V1, 2s, I don't remember, you mean all the specific allergens? But the, the general principle here is we can make IgGs, we can make a cocktail of them that bind to the allergens, the offending allergens, okay, and eliminate the allergic response. This will work. Now, what's the market opportunity for something like this? I don't know. Um, a lot of people uh, told us there was, there'd be no market opportunity for eczema. Who's going to pay money f- to treat you know, eczema? Um, well, that was obviously uh, a miscalculation by many. Now all the Johnny-come-latelys are trying to get into the atopic dermatitis field when we believed in it you know uh, a, a half a decade or a decade ago. So I think the same thing here. You know, some of these might be lifestyle drugs. You know, if you have allergic rhinitis to a cat, some payer might say, get rid of your cat. Our surveys show that if somebody owns a cat and they're about to get married, they'd sooner break off the engagement than give up their cat if their prospective spouse is allergic to the cat. So I
0: literally had this discussion with my wife. I'm sure she would keep the cat instead of you. She said somebody else would love you. I'm not sure about the cat.
1: <laughs> so uh, you know, I can in your case I can particularly understand that. So the the bottom line, I'm sure in my case, if my wife liked cats, she would have kept the cat. Thank goodness she didn't have a cat when we got married. But the 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 notion that maybe this will be a lifestyle type drug where people will have to pay out of your pocket to keep the cat versus if you tr- truly have asthma, remember people say you give up the cat, but you can't walk into a building an office building, and you can you can swab the floor and there's cat dander there. People have cats, they bring it to the office that comes off their clothes. And so it's hard to escape this even if you give up cats. So I think this is going to be a market here. I think we're already talking to allergists because of atopic dermatitis. And we expect to be able to create a franchise that people are sort of ignoring around our allergic uh, 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 strategy.
0: Uh, and with that, uh, Len, uh, Justin, Robert, really thank you for joining us today. Obviously, lots of things to see from Regeneron in the next twelve months. I really appreciate you being here today.
1: It's great to be here. We could have gone on for hours, Ronnie. Very All much, right. very much enjoyed it. Take thank care. You.
0: Thanks, Ronnie. Bye-bye.